0: Before we begin, a quick note on what's been happening in Minneapolis. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, an absolutely tragic, tragic event, his murder at the hands of white policemen, an African-American unarmed male murdered at the hands of white police officers who uh, knelt on his neck as he was being restrained, completely unarmed, bear in mind, and he was knelt on his neck and murdered in broad daylight. Absolutely tragic what happened. Uh, One officer has been arrested and we await to see what happens with the rest of them but protesters have been taken to the streets all across America and in fact all around the world as well and my thoughts are with the family of George Floyd and, uh, and we stand in solidarity with all those who are fighting for equal justice and equal rights in the United States and around the world. For too long, this has been going on, and hopefully the protests that are going on now, and hopefully the message has been sent, that black people will not be putting up with this kind of nonsense anymore. So, just wanted to express my thoughts on that matter, and hopefully we are able to draw a line under this dark period and move forward in unison. Welcome back to Nonstop Politics, I'm your host DK Leslie and my gosh, hasn't it been a really challenging week in the news this week and I've had trouble keeping up not only with the sheer amount that's been going on, but also of course how depressing and saddening it has been, as I said with events in Minneapolis. Obviously the big political story this week in the UK was a controversy surrounding whether or not Boris Johnson's chief advisor Dominic Cummings broke lockdown rules in late march and early april by traveling 260 miles to isolate at his parents estate in durham huge political and public health implications come with this story so i'll be covering this in much more detail in a separate upcoming episode but today on the podcast we'll discuss how schools across the country are preparing to welcome students back into the classroom plus nhs track and trace launched on thursday we'll talk about how and whether this system will be able to keep the number of infections down in England and will cover other lockdown restrictions that have been eased by the government and why some scientists are nervous about these moves. But first, as ever, an update on the numbers on the coronavirus pandemic from the UK and around the world. As of the 30th of May 2020 in the UK, there have been 272,826 recorded cases of coronavirus and sadly 38,000 people. Have died. Bulk of that figure being in England with 34,000 deaths, followed by Scotland at 2,300 deaths, Wales at 1,300 deaths, and Northern Ireland at 521. And globally, there have been over 6 million cases of coronavirus with almost 370,000 deaths. And this week, the United States became the first country to surpass 100,000 deaths, a truly devastating milestone. And my thoughts are, of course, with the families of the victims may their memories be a blessing. Now whilst the peak has passed in much of Europe, Asia and the States, the number of cases is only beginning to rise in other countries, most notably Brazil and Russia, where those two countries now have the second and third highest number of cases worldwide respectively. In fact the WHO reported that this week saw the highest single-day increases in number of cases since the outbreak began. So what can we take away from these figures at a macro level? Well clearly even though we're almost six months into this thing the pandemic is still alive and kicking and it's too early for us to get complacent with any measures that we're taking and from a political point of view because of course this is a politics podcast there is a pattern beginning to emerge here. Look at the four nations with populist leaders the US, Brazil, Russia and the UK all of whom are leading countries that have bear the brunt of the death toll. Could there be a link there? Possibly, you never know. Some leaders such as Bolsonaro dismissing the virus as just flu. Some leaders such as Boris Johnson shaking hands with patients, boasting about that fact. Trump saying that the virus will go away quickly. Some people say yes, there is a link there. Other folks would say no link whatsoever. That's for you to decide as listeners, but certainly, in terms of the global pandemic, the end is nowhere near in sight. But as progress continues, on vaccine research and antibody testing we make baby steps towards setting ourselves free from the virus so back in england one of the greatest areas of contention in the last week or so has been whether or not we should reopen schools now this was announced several weeks ago at the last prime ministerial address but has been simmering ever since with a back and forth dialogue between unions and government scientists taking place to ensure maximum safety for teachers and students alike. So, from the 1st of June, primary schools will reopen their doors for students in preschool, nursery, reception, Year 1 and Year 6, and that's in England. And from the 15th of June, Years 10 and Years 12 will come back for some face time with their teachers, an important step since those students will be, hopefully we think, sitting exams in the summer of 21. And it's important to note, as I mentioned, that these measures vary across the four nations. The ones that I've just outlined right now are for England only. And the classroom will look much different compared to how it was before when students return. The BBC outlined a few guidelines that have been set up by the government, including a limit of 15 children in classrooms. And those 15 children have to be the same every time they come to school in order to reduce contact with other students more hand washing is going to be key, staggered breaks and lunches, less sharing of equipment, no parents gathering at the school gates, I wonder how that one will go down. And of course, social distancing underpins everything that's been going on. Bear in mind the fact that the UK is clearly taking notes here from Danish schools, which have been open for some time now, and their approach seems to have been somewhat successful. Though, not going to lie, some of the images coming out of Denmark Showing the kids stood two meters apart and having to hug themselves were quite sad, to be honest with you. And that's definitely not how school life should be. But you know what? If it's what it takes to prevent further cases, then that is how it'll have to be for the time being. And so I honestly do not envy kids who have to go back in these incredibly difficult circumstances, let alone the parents who have to send their kids to school. And they are going to have big decisions to make about whether or not they send their children back to school. In the UK, You are not going to be fined as a parent if you don't send your child to school, but it's clearly something that's being encouraged by the government that you get your kids back into school, especially for the most disadvantaged students. And, you know, imagine having to go to school in a socially distanced manner. How would it even work practically? Yes, the government has put out very extensive measures for schools to implement, all, of course, underpinned by social distancing, but many councils are refusing to open their schools citing safety fears, and, of course, the reproduction rate, the R number, being higher in certain places. Now, of course, what we do know is that even if younger children catch the virus, they are highly unlikely to suffer severe symptoms, although we have seen cases of kids suffering from a form of Kawasaki disease, which causes inflammation in certain parts of the body, what's seen as a delayed immune response. But the problem here is that schools have now been closed since mid-March, That's over two months of lost face-to-face contact and for the most disadvantaged students that could represent years of falling behind their peers and so I'm not sure if I was still in secondary school or college I would want to go back but what's clear is that since the virus isn't going away soon schools will just need to learn to adapt and make it work and as much as I would love the extended holiday you do have to consider the future prospects of young people. So the schools debate is certainly one that's going to keep raging on and it's certainly a big risk to take reopening schools and there remains a chance that, the, that entire schools could be shut down again if one person in the community that goes to that school tests positive which would be a very drastic but a very necessary step and that can absolutely be done with the Track and Trace programme which has now been introduced and that is where that will come in handy. So after being pressured into committing to a date for its launch by Sakir Starmer several weeks ago, the Prime Minister and Health Secretary Matt Hancock confirmed this week that NHS Track and Trace would begin operation Thursday Gone. And again, it's important to note that the four nations are taking slightly different approaches. So, for example, Northern Ireland already has its operation in place. Scotland will launch a slightly different system called Test and Protect. But let's take a broader perspective here for a second. Why is Track and Trace? so important in the first place? Well, there are two key reasons. Firstly, it will enable the National Health Service to have more detail about how and where the virus is spreading, because if you can stop the virus in its tracks by isolating not just those who have symptoms, but also those that may have been exposed, then you don't give it a chance to spread. But more importantly, the director of Track and Trace, Baroness Harding, has pointed out that the data on where the virus is means that national lockdown measures can be tailored to become local lockdowns, where it appears there may be an uptick in community spread, and hence the introduction of of so-called local lockdowns, should that be necessary. And all of this means that the country as a whole will be able to reopen, whilst those who are told to isolate can do so without having such a significant impact on the economy, as as would be seen in the event of a national lockdown like the one that we have right now. So here is the BBC breakdown of how Test and Trace will work. So as before, if you have symptoms, you isolate for seven days and your whole household will isolate for 14 days. But now the testing program is open to everyone. So if you show symptoms, then you must get a test immediately. If you test negative, everyone in your household goes back to normal. But if you test positive, you will have contact traces from the NHS getting in touch to seek out the contacts that you may have had. And those contacts will be told to then self-isolate for 14 days, regardless of whether they have symptoms or not. Now, a very important point to make at this stage is that everyone else in the household does not have to self-isolate unless someone becomes ill. And in that event, if someone does become ill, the same rules would apply as before. Everyone else would have to self-isolate for 14 days, and the person who became ill would start a new seven-day isolation period, just like before. And the health secretary, Matt Hancock, has also made it clear that if you are contacted on more than one occasion to self-isolate, then you would have to do so. So if I've been told to isolate for 14 days, and I did that 14-day isolation period, developed no symptoms and left isolation, hypothetically, the next day, I could get a call from a contact tracer telling me that I've once again come into contact with someone who's tested positive, and therefore, 14-day period starts back again, and if that wasn't enough, even if you already had the virus, you may still be able to transmit it, so you too would have to self-isolate it. The jury is still out on whether or not people who have already had the virus can still transmit the virus, even though they may have antibodies. That is still to be determined. So there'll be a lot of controversy about the fact that people may have to self-isolate multiple times. Good news on that front is that the government will pay statutory sick pay throughout people's isolation so it's good to have that safety net although some people in the labor party like Jonathan Ashworth have called for that safety net to be increased dramatically many community organizations are also out there to help people who are isolating too but the downside of NHS track and trace and one of the things that I think needs to be rectified very quickly is the fact that This system is only voluntary, and it relies on people telling the truth. I think giving contacts and following the isolation period should be mandatory. If you are told to isolate by an NHS contact tracer, I think spot checks should follow, just as what's going to be happening with folks travelling into the country from the 8th of June. They're going to be having spot checks to make sure that they're self-quarantining for 14 days, and I think the same should apply to people who've been told by an NHS contact tracer they need to self-isolate too. And if they're not doing that, fines should be given out. That's the fact of the matter. Because as I said with schools, this is a big risk. Reopening the country is a big risk at this point. We're still on level four. We may be moving in the direction of of level three, but we are still at a heightened risk. And Track and trace is one of the most important keys to ensuring that the spread within a school and in many walks of life is limited too. But my instinct is that the scheme will really kick into high gear once more and more people are back at work. For example, non-essential retail is beginning to open up from the 15th of June. You're going to have colleagues in close contact with each other they'll be able to keep each other safe with track and trace to make sure that anyone who may have been exposed can immediately be isolated. Will it be bad for business? Maybe, but for the good of the nation, that is what it takes. That's what it should be. But it certainly will take some time before the full merits of the scheme are realised. Now, let's run over some of the other measures that are being eased this week. So, currently, up to six people from different households are now allowed to meet outdoors, provided that they each keep two metres apart. Now, this includes private gardens for the first time, and the Prime Minister himself has noted that, yes, barbecue season is here, although, again, social distancing and careful hygiene measures will still need to be followed. Now, dental practices are also open, which will come as a huge relief to many people who have had to resort to so-called DIY dentistry, pulling their old teeth out and that kind of thing. And in terms of retail, outdoor markets and car showrooms are now open. They get priority because, of course, they are based in primarily outdoor spaces, which makes it much easier to implement social distancing in those settings. And then the big one comes in two weeks time on the 15th of June, with all other non-essential retail being allowed to open if they are COVID secure. But this is, of course, conditional on the five tests being met, the five tests that were set up by the first Secretary of State, Dominic Raab, several weeks ago. And, of course, it's conditional on the R number, keeping steady or showing a decline. And, of course, any uptick in cases between now and then could see the brakes slammed back onto the lifting of restrictions, and we could be back to square one with a national lockdown. And one other key point here, just announced in the last few hours, Folks in the shielding category have had their restrictions eased too. You remember those 2.2 million folks that the NHS wrote to back at the end of March and in early April who were in the vulnerable categories, such as those over 70 and those with certain underlying conditions. Well, the Community Secretary Robert Jenrick has said that shielders who live alone can meet one other person from a different household, again, whilst keeping two metres apart, and you can also go out with people from your own household. And that will be a big sigh of relief for those folks as well. But, of course, there have been some musings over the last few days from scientific advisors, some of whom actually work on SAGE, that lockdown measures are being eased way too soon. One member in particular, John Edmonds, has criticised the government for rushing reopening. He wants a more incremental approach, one step at a time, rather than making small steps all at once. He wants steps to be taken with a much lower R rating. He does uh, praise the government for being able to keep the R steady, but he wants movement to be made at a steady R rate that is much lower than the current 0.7 to 0.9 figure. And you know what? It does actually feel like that a lot is happening at the moment. You know, more people are going to be outside, more people are going to be heading back to work by mid-June, and you have to think about whether or not things are going to stay steady or if the lid is going to come off entirely. I mean, think about the tube, for example, more people are going to be heading back to work in non-essential retail. You're going to have hundreds and thousands of department store employees. And I can tell you now, they are not going to be cycling or walking to work. Believe me, they're all going to be taking public transport. Trust me, I've worked in a massive, massive store before. And I can tell you that that is how most people are going to get to work, public transport. But the problem with social distancing is that capacity is going to be much, much lower. But there's going to come a point where more people will be using the transport network. And so how is that going to be managed? We'll have to wait and see. How will crowds outside shopping centres be managed? How will you stop people from gathering inside homes now that people can gather in gardens? There's nothing really to stop people from gathering inside. Once you're allowing people to go out to gardens, people will go inside. It's a natural thing to do. How's that going to be policed? And, you know, all of this really speaks to what Professor... Jonathan Van Tam, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, said at Saturday's daily briefing on coronavirus. Take a listen. This virus, as I said last time I was at the podium, has a natural R of three. One case will infect three more people. It's like having a spring in a box and you've got the lid on. Now you can take the lid off a little but you haven't disconnected the spring or broken the spring in any way. If you take the lid right off, the spring's still under tension, off it will go again. And so this is a dual responsibility here of government to go slowly and carefully and to take the advice from the scientists, of the scientists to watch this whole thing very closely over the next few weeks, and of the public in general to actually follow the guidance don't tear the pants out of it and don't go further than the guidance actually says. Professor Van Tam really urging caution there and taking a very very similar tone to the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor at Thursday's briefing too. So folks this does really serve a reminder that the fight is not over yet and that the virus is still out there circulating. Nonetheless it's great that these restrictions are being now lifted bit by bit. People are going to be very appreciative of the newfound freedom and as I said if we all act responsibly and safely, we can avoid putting all our efforts to so far to waste with the second spike and instead ensure that the gains we have made are sustainable and long-lasting. Thank you for listening to Nonstop Politics. If you enjoyed, why not follow us on Instagram at Nonstop Politics and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.